everyone, and welcome back to The Van Maren Show. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and today I want to add another episode in my ongoing series on the cultural implications of the transgender movement. And as I've mentioned in the last couple of episodes, I think this is important to do because many of the implications of the transgender movement are difficult to discern at first glance. And another reason this is important is because the transgender debate is right now front and center in Canada, especially over the last week with the news out of Alberta, and it's front and center in the United States with the role of so-called gender-affirming care, which is actually sex change surgeries and mutilating minors, is going to be a key issue in the 2024 election between President, ex-president Donald Trump and current president Joe Biden. And so the claims that transgender activists are making are very important to look at carefully, especially because we're being force-fed this stuff by the vast majority of the mainstream media. And one of the things I want to look at now is the recent attempt over the past couple of years to backfill a pedigree for the 21st century transgender movement. And this is an important aspect of what the transgender movement has been doing, and it's a key aspect of why they have worked so hard to capture institutions like the media and like academia at large. Now, I graduated from Simon Fraser University in 2010 with a degree in history, and if you know anything about Canadian universities, you'll know that Simon Fraser University has always been considered one of the most left-wing campuses in Canada. And in fact, uh, SFU professors, at least those of a more leftist bent, have always been very proud of SFU's radical past. The 1970 abortion caravan actually left from that campus pushing for the legalization of abortion. An abortion referral ring was run off campus even before abortion was decriminalized in Canada. SFU has been a place where social change has been pushed early and pushed hard. And when I went there, I found the history department, with a few really significant exceptions, to be a pretty liberal history department. Uh, but even then, there wasn't only, there wasn't even a trace of transgender ideology as of yet. And keep in mind, this is only 14 years ago, which is not that long ago. And I wrote for the campus newspaper, The Peak, at the time. And I was involved in a lot of campus politics and a lot of campus activism. And even the hardcore left-wingers that I worked with on various campaigns or worked against on others found the whole idea of transgenderism to be really fringe. It was not a debate that came up at all. Uh, Same-sex marriage was debated hotly in the pages of the newspaper. Um, So LGBT issues were definitely on the radar, but the only mention of transgender ideology that I can remember in my time at Simon Fraser University was a transgender day of remembrance that was hosted by the, the campus LGBT club. And the whole thing was kind of treated as a, as a fringe freak show by those who were looking at it. I remember going through it um, with a liberal friend of mine who did not share my social views on, vir- uh, on virtually anything. He was rolling his eyes at the idea that transgender uh, ideology was even coherent. And this was sort of the mood on campus. And it's, it's easy to forget how recently this ideology has become the ideology of the elites accepted as fact, imposed from the top down. It's very easy to remember the fact that a very short time ago, you could go to even a very left-wing campus and not have any of this stuff force-fed to you, whereas now, on most liberal campuses or any campuses, uh, professors will 
introduce themselves with their pronouns. They'll, they'll actually request that students offer their own pronouns. And so campuses, which are always at the cutting edge of social liberalism, have really been pushed into an entirely different mode of operation by this ideology that virtually nobody was discussing a very short amount of time ago. Now, why is this important? It's important because when new ideological movements seize power in institutions, it's always necessary for them to write, rewrite history. And they have to rewrite history because they have to make the claim that this brand new ideology that was foisted on us very recently is not in fact a recent ideology. It's an ideology that was always there, just not one that we noticed. There's an old Soviet joke that I love uh, commenting on the communist overhaul of Russian history that put it this way. The future is certain. It's only the past that's unpredictable. And that is incredibly true when it comes to the transgender debate uh, here in Canada and across the West. And again, this has a precedent because the gay rights movement did this as well as soon as they began to ga uh, gain cultural dominance. Suddenly it was claimed that all kinds of men who were happily married with a slew of children were in fact homosexual. This claim was made about Abraham Lincoln because he would occasionally share a bed with male friends, uh, something that it happened very, very frequently. It was common practice without any hint of homoeroticism being attributed to it. Uh, this claim has been made about William Shakespeare, who was happily married to Anne Hathaway, with whom he had a bunch of kids, including twins. As it turns out, once LGBT activists started really squinting at the texts and inserting their own desires and proclivities into all kinds of uh, historical circumstances, the historical closet was just packed with fictional gays. And the same thing was done in religious studies. Progressive religious uh, scholars hastened to queer as much of the scriptures as they could, very blasphemously asserting that there were many gay couples cited in scripture, including uh, Jonathan and David, Ruth and Naomi, and even Daniel somehow ends up labeled as a homosexual. And now with the ascendance of the transgender movement, we're seeing the same thing unfold. We're seeing new discoveries begin in earnest. The most humorous example of this, and again, this stuff would be funny if it wasn't so serious. My first instinct when coming across a lot of these stories is just to make fun of it because it seems so manifestly ridiculous. And then you consider that the people who are making these ridiculous discoveries are actually the people who are in charge of a lot of significant stuff. And that thus this stuff does have an impact regardless of how ridiculous it seems. So last November, we received breaking news from 218 AD when the North Hertfordshire Museum in the UK declared that Emperor Elagabalus, who ruled Rome briefly until his assassination at the age of 18 in 222 AD, was in fact transgender. According to the Telegraph, the museum has said that it will, quote, be sensitive to the purported pronoun preferences of the 3rd century AD ruler Elagabalus. And I'm sorry, I'm probably butchering his name. The emperor will be treated as a transgender woman and referred to as she. Now, you'll notice that there's always terms that they sneak into these sentences that do a lot of heavy lifting. So in that particular sentence, it would be purported pronoun preferences, because as shocking as it may be to some of my listeners, uh, the pronoun offerings were not a standard practice in ancient Rome or indeed in any civilization uh, before the West at twilight. And hilariously, the claim that this guy was a transgender derives from classical texts asserting that Elagabalus once asked to be called a lady 
But most historians believe that these accounts were an attempt at character assassination. As the Telegraph reported, quote, Information on museum policy states that pronouns used in displays will be those, quote, the individual in question might have used themselves, or whatever pronouns in retrospect is appropriate. Now again, a keen observer might note that just like uh, retrospectively, the in retrospect is, is doing a lot of heavy lifting in that sentence. Now, unsurprisingly, it turns out that the museum, quote, consults LGBT charities Stonewall and the LGBT wing of the trade union Unison on Best Practice to ensure that our displays, publicity, and talks are as up-to-date and inclusive as possible, end quote. Now, what's the problem with that sentence? Well, history, you see, must always be kept up-to-date and inclusive, which it I assume, would be brand new information for most operating historians. History is often reinterpreted. There's often uh, new information that comes to light that changes our understanding of various people and events. But this isn't another thing entirely. But liberal Democrat counselor Keith Hoskins, who I must note is not a historian, was downright gruntled by this decision. He stated firmly that Elagabalus most definitely preferred the she pronoun, and as such, this is something we reflect when discussing her in contemporary times. We try to be sensitive to identifying pronouns for people in the past as we are for people in the present. It is only polite and respectful. We know that Elagabalus identified as a woman and was explicit about which pronouns to use, which shows us that pronouns are not a new thing, end quote. Now, perhaps you noticed, again, the significance of the last part of that statement, because here, Hoskins is saying the quiet part out loud. This emperor has been retroactively transitioned because, by doing so, his elders get to make the point that, quote, pronouns are not a new thing, insinuating that the rest of us should just get with the ideological pro of the program. I almost said get with the ideological pronouns. Freudian slip means basically the same thing. Now, that's one of the reasons why stories that seem kind of ridiculous on the surface end up serving a pretty sinister purpose. And that purpose is to tell the rest of us that any objections that we might have to the compelled speech of using pronouns, compelled speech that actually compels us to live by lies, to address males as women and women as males, to claim that this has a pedigree, even if that pedigree has incredibly dubious origins in ancient Rome, is to use the academic pursuit of history to shut up critics of 21st century transgender ideology. Now, less ideological historians have noted, of course, that accusations of effeminacy were leveled at this emperor specifically to bring him into disrepute and to justify his assassination. As Cambridge Classics professor Andrew Wallace Hadrill observed, the Romans didn't have our idea of trans as a category, but they used accusations of sexual behavior as a woman as one of the worst insults against men, as it turns out, the past was as transphobic as the present. Uh, Tom Holland, who's one of my favorite historians of the ancient world, and also wrote a brilliant book on the history of Christianity, explaining why all of our moral values are derived from Christianity, also summed up this news, I thought, quite succinctly. Quote, This rests on two pretty dubious assumptions. Firstly, that in this one case, 
The notoriously unreliable sources for Elagabalus's reign are to be trusted, and secondly, that Roman assumptions about gender can be seamlessly mapped onto those of British museum curators in 2023. Still, excellent marketing by the museum, end quote. He also noted, as did uh, the previous historian, that accusations of effeminacy were leveled at pretty much every Roman politician as the, quote, go-to insult. So this poor emperor now faces the fate of having activists triumphantly affirm the worst smears of his political enemies. Now, it bears mentioning, of course, that like many Roman emperors, this fellow was a cruel and hedonistic man who doesn't deserve any of our sympathy, and thus it's kind of weird that the transgender movement is trying to recruit him specifically, but the fact that they want to recruit this particular emperor and grant him the she, her pronouns, and deeply respect his alleged gender identity, which we are squinting at from our vantage point in 2024, is an indication of how few characters they have with which to rewrite the narrative and to force us all to cooperate with their new ideology. But this isn't just a one-off ridiculous story here, because as I say in most of my podcasts, we could be justifiably accused sometimes of doing something called nutpicking, which is pick some crazy, insane story, pick some idiotic academic theory being spouted off by some intellectual, and then hang an entire theory of social change on that one nut. But unfortunately, uh, this Hertfordshire Museum story isn't just a humorous one-off that we can all make fun of and move on from. This sort of thing has become very, very common. And I first noticed it a, a couple of years ago, that suddenly all of these archaeologists and historians and academics were unearthing transgenders with an alarming frequency. So let me just give you a, a couple of examples here. A 2019 report from the History Channel breathlessly reported that, quote, a high-ranking Viking warrior, long assumed to be male, was actually female, and that this, quote, revelation raised questions about how Vikings may have understood gender roles as well as gender identity. Now, like these questions, it must be noted, were only raised by activists longing for transgender Vikings to talk about. And the amount of projection from queer ideology emanating out of Ivy Leagues in the present all the way back to the murderous Viking Norsemen a couple of thousand years ago is, is quite frankly insane. But this stuff is getting a ton of traction. I would have personally thought the Vikings were much better uh, candidates for screeds about toxic masculinity. But no, apparently uh, some of their graves indicate that we might have been getting significant things about their gender identity wrong. It's not just the Vikings either. If it was just the North Hertfordshire Museum and the Vikings, we could kind of say, okay, you know, crazy ideas always emanate out of academia, although I would point out that the last 20 years have indicated that those crazy ideas start on campus, become mainstream and mandatory shortly thereafter. But it's also the Anglo-Saxons, apparently. Last year, and this is a real gem, a PhD candidate in medieval history at the University of Liverpool produced this headline, quote, the burials that could challenge historians' ideas about Anglo-Saxon gender. And I want to read the opening paragraph here because this is just really an extraordinary piece of ideological jargon. My PhD research asks whether looking at these atypically gendered burials through the lens of trans theory and the 21st century language of transness has the potential to improve historians' understanding of early Anglo-Saxon gender. 
Atypically gendered burials are generally excluded as outliers in excavation reports and subsequent research. This relies on the anachronistic idea that historical societies followed a system of sex, gender, and sexuality aligning with 19th century Western standards. Now, let's dissect that garbage pile for a minute, because there's a lot there. Now, first, notice that this guy had the guts, and you almost have to appreciate his chutzpah here, because he actually had the guts to use the term anachronistic in an article where he is making the case for looking at Anglo-Saxon burials through the lens of trans theory and the 21st century language of transness. Why does this take guts? Because first he's saying that perhaps we never identified transgender Anglo-Saxons previously because we had been looking back at history through the sort of rigid sex, gender, and sexuality standards of the 19th century. I would argue that those continued through a good chunk of the 20th century as well. And so instead, in order to avoid anachronism, we need to swap those out and instead apply the brand spanking new lens of trans theory instead. This is obviously nuts, but this stuff is published in once prestigious magazines that are purported to serve the function of improving our knowledge, but in reality are serving a function for the transgender movement, which is backfilling a historical pedigree for them. So there you have it. You've got a transgender Roman emperor. You've got a whole bunch of transgender Viking warriors who are being discovered all the time now. And, you know, we have a, a challenge being made to the historian's ideas about Anglo-Saxon gender, which I would point out that 50 years ago, I don't think that historians thought they had any ideas about Anglo-Saxon gender because people accepted that we actually were just male and female and the idea of finding some non-binary Anglo-Saxons would wouldn't have occurred to them because non-binary wasn't a thing yet. And so even his assertion that he's challenging the previous ideas of historians is in fact anachronistic. It, really, this guy genuinely invents new ways to be wrong, and that's just in the opening paragraph. And I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's it's basically a flaming garbage pile, but it's, it is important, I think, to just take a look at what these people are saying because these are the people that are ending up teaching kids. Side note, don't send your kids to a, a liberal arts institution unless it's got a Christian grounding because otherwise they're going to come home telling you about cross-dressing Vikings and transgender Anglo-Saxons, and, and it gets better. The past, in other words, is transgender, and we just didn't notice it until now. And so activist academics are now producing this stuff by the boatload. Now, let me give you just a couple of examples that I found with a couple of very, very brief searches, including stuff that I had noted myself over the last couple of years. We had breaking news of androgynous Scythian shamans, which I'll get to in a minute, but this is not, this is not particularly news. As it turns out, the Scythians didn't dress the way that we did. And now this means they were androgynous, but androgynous doesn't mean just by the retroactive Western standards of today, they dress differently. Now, obviously, this means something about non-binariness or whatever. There were apparently multiple Maori genders. The Maoris are the indigenous people of New Zealand. And this was, of course, immediately disputed hotly and angrily by actual Maori people. But, um, you know, the indigenous people have been moved down the oppression hierarchy and trans people and MBs are at the top. 
We also discovered an Iron Age Persian gravesite revealing that ancients, quote, recognized transgender people 3,000 years ago. Hard to believe, right? It's because it's not true. There was uh, a couple of transgender soldiers in the ancient Roman army and a well, more transgender Viking warriors, just going through my list here, and uh, an ancient Egyptian pharaoh who was apparently transgender. That one is Hatshepsut. You can actually see her uh, statues, massive statues of her um, at Luxor Palace in Egypt. I visited them in 2018. They're incredibly impressive. And at the time, in 2008... Um, in, 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 in the before times when things were much darker and we didn't know about transness, she was explained to us by the tour guides as wearing a beard to symbol her status as a ruler, to just essentially symbolize the fact that she was a pharaoh. Now, however, however, we're much smarter um, because now we realize she was obviously transgender based on applying the lens of transness to the ancient Egyptians who can't speak for themselves. There's also been hundreds of media articles published just over the last couple of years claiming that a wide array of historical characters were in fact transgender or non-binary. Non-binary, as I said before, was not a thing until very recently, so it would come as a great surprise to all of these people that they were a thing that they didn't know existed. But this was done very successfully by the gay rights movement, but this is now something being done less successfully so far, but give it five minutes by the transgender movement. And some of these headlines openly come out and establish what they're trying to do by these articles. These are articles that are trying to craft a narrative, not provide you with new information. One headline said, quote, trans is not a trend for gender non-conforming historical figures who dared to be themselves. By daring to be themselves, they invariably mean in transgender parlance, uh, not being yourself, which means that you need to change uh, your body and change who you are in order to really become who you are. It would be like if you were in a cocoon and you came out as a butterfly, but then you needed your wings chopped off in order to truly become the butterfly you were meant to be. Anyways, that's a side note. Uh, the trans is not a trend part of that headline is the significant part of the headline. It's the part of the headline that matters because it reveals what they're trying to do. Now, there's one other note that I want to make here uh, before I conclude this episode, and that's the extent to which transgender activists and radical feminists have found themselves at odds. And we've seen uh, this conflict play out uh, most prominently in the UK, where radical feminists and trans activists, uh, largely men in dresses, have actually duked it out in the streets. And that's because feminists spent decades fighting not only for sex-based rights, but fighting against the idea that there was such a thing as rigid sex roles, rigid gender roles. In other words, um, just because a woman wore pants didn't mean she was a man. Women could wear whatever they wanted to to, men could wear whatever they wanted to, and there wasn't just one way to be female and one way to be male. Now, all that's being chucked out the window because transgender activists are in, uh, essentially asserting that very specific 1950s gender stereotypes are an indication of transness. So it's not like anybody can wear whatever they want. If a boy plays with dolls, well, it's time to get him castrated and put him on puberty blockers. If a girl shows interests in, in stereotypically masculine pursuits, if she happens to be a tomboy, this is actually an indication that that girl is transgender and she too must first be socially transitioned, referred to by male pronouns, essentially given gender dysphoria because she made the mistake of picking up a Tonka truck and then placed on the path to transgender as well. And so, ironically, all of these historic discoveries that I just enlightened you all to, and you can thank me later, um, really show that 
what these academics are doing is they're borrowing 1950s gender stereotypes that we were supposed to have abandoned uh, as, as the waves of feminism washed over our culture. And now they're retroactively applying those to claim that they're, you know, digging up transgender Vikings and non-binary Anglo-Saxons and and uh, Iron Age Persian transgenders. It never ends. I can't wait to I can't wait to read what they have what they what they unearth next. But the reality is is that we have a bunch of of, of post-Christian ideologies that are fundamentally at odds with each other and are duking it out. And I wish they could all lose, but I'm worried that one of them or more of them are actually going to win. And so this is very, it's very, it's both wildly postmodern and, and air quotes progressive in one way, but wildly reactionary in another way. And what they're doing here is something that I think is going to have long-standing effects. Again, it's already, it's already completely poisoned academia, which is just sort of a, a weird version of its previous self. But the, the new boom in transgender archaeology and historiography is, is, as I said before, basically what we could call backfilling is the transgender activists have established their conclusions. Their conclusions are sex and gender are distinct from one another, and transgender ideology is a fact. And then they go hunting for the evidence to support the conclusion that they've already asserted. So now, gender-fluid warriors are suddenly being dug up in massive quantities, and right on schedule, too. Unbelievable how that worked out. And critical new discoveries are being made in ancient texts at the intersection of gender ideology and history. Napoleon once called history a set of lies agreed upon. And if you're a historian or an archaeologist right now, the sure ticket to great press coverage is to catch some long-dead king in a skirt or to excavate some new transgender tribe. That's going to get you the front page of all kinds of academic publications. Any article asserting that, indeed, gender ideology was prevalent among the face-eating cannibals of Papua New Guinea or something like that is definitely going to win you a lot of accolades, and we're going to forget that the cannibals were, in fact, a face-eating people and instead celebrate them because they're a transgender people. And so this, there's a huge cultural pressure to actually produce more of the same thing because you become more personally successful, you get your name in newspapers, you get your name on academic papers, you get published in peer-reviewed journals, and then you also, of course, serve the function of the transgender revolution by making the case that the transgenders have always been with us. And so if pronouns were good enough for Emperor What's-His-Face in 212, pronouns should be good enough for you too, bigot, so shut up and use them. We're going to see plenty more of these lies produced in the years ahead as the dead are once more called to endorse the delusions of the living. And it's easy to laugh it off, and and you have to laugh it off sometimes. I still think some of this stuff is ridiculous and hilarious, and sometimes I think you have to appropriately ridicule the ridiculous. Uh, you, you can't pop a gasket every time uh, some new, new insane claim is made by transgender activists because otherwise you'd never enjoy your life. But at the same time, what I've been trying to do in these episodes is to connect the dots. And those dots form a web. And that web stretches from institution to institution. And those institutions make up the elite of our society. And our society has been changing rapidly almost overnight in historical terms, in ways that I think will profoundly affect the life of each of us individually in the years to come, and certainly the lives of our children if they want to go and get educated at any of these institutions.
And so anyways, that's why I just spent 30 minutes talking about transgender ancient warriors, but I do hope that this was somewhat informative and helpful for you. If you did find this helpful, you can check out our podcast at lifesightnews.com. Click on the podcast tab. You can find us there, or you can download us wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening this week, and we do hope you'll join us again next week.